This is the Math Ed Podcast. I'm Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and I'm thrilled to have been your host for the past five years. I started the podcast during my first semester at Mizzou, which was the fall of 2012. But I actually had the idea a year earlier while I was still at Michigan State University. Back then, I rode the bus to campus every day, and so I listened to quite a few podcasts, and I really appreciated them as a free and highly accessible medium for reaching people with specific interests. Also at Michigan State, we had several doctoral courses where we would read studies and then the faculty members of the courses would set up phone calls with the authors whose work we had just been reading. Usually these were set up because the Michigan State scholar was personal friends with the author and so it was pretty easy to convince them to come talk with our class. But what I noticed after a few semesters was that though we read dozens and dozens of articles, the most memorable ones to me were the ones where I got to hear from the author directly in their own voice. It was those phone calls. Even if they were just 15 minutes or a half hour, they really helped me understand and connect with the articles. They brought the studies to life, basically. So during my final year at Michigan State, I put these two experiences together, listening to podcasts and then talking to the authors of Math Ed Studies. And I realized that putting these together could lead to a math ed podcast. I could basically have a conversation with researchers about their recent studies and then share it with everyone, and it would sort of simulate the experience in class that I had at Michigan State. At first, I thought that I might also do a news segment before the interview, so I might say, hey, here's what's going on in math ed. It might cover upcoming proposal deadlines or recaps of conferences and stuff like that. But eventually, I realized that that material, the news stuff, would basically give the podcast episodes an expiration date. Whereas if I just focused on the interviews themselves, those could be relevant even years down the line, as long as the research topic was still interesting. And focusing on interviews and having those around specific studies also meant that I could have return guests because people could come back on to talk about their new studies, even if they've already talked about previous studies before. And I liked that idea of having some return guests. So I had that idea worked out in early 2012 while I was finishing up at Michigan State, and I went ahead and reserved the domain, mathedpodcast.com, but I had a dissertation to finish. My wife was about to have our first child, uh, who was born a few days after my dissertation defense, by the way, and then we were also moving to my new job in Missouri, so I didn't actually start up the podcast until the fall of 2012. I had a few friends from Michigan State record initial episodes with me because they were willing to give me a chance because they didn't know quite what this thing was yet. Um, And once I had a few examples, it was easier to get more people to come on later. Um, But I recorded with a few Michigan State friends, and I recorded two interviews with people who I tracked down at PMENA that year. Um, Bill Zahner ended up being the first official guest on the podcast uh, back when he was still at Boston University before he moved west. So I put out six episodes that first fall. And I was thrilled that anyone at all even downloaded it. Uh, In 2013, I continued and I produced 18 more episodes, and the traffic continued to gradually increase. I also did my first couple episodes that focused on a senior scholar's career, rather than only having episodes about new studies. In 2015, I included yet another category of special episodes, um, because in 2015 I captured some people's invited presentations, such as Jim Hebert's remarks at SIGRME, and then Keith Weber's proof talk at PMENA that year. So now I had three kind of categories of episodes, the main episodes that are about recent studies, then these kind of career retrospectives, and then these captured um, presentations. But by now, it's near the end of 2017, and it has been 100 episodes. The podcast has grown to be much more than I ever expected. I was thinking that some faculty members around the country might listen to it, and then maybe a lot of doc students might check it out as a way to get to know research and to get to know the researchers who are active in the field. 
But the podcast has been used among the scholarly community much more than I ever imagined. It's more widespread. It's even gone beyond the borders of the United States, which I didn't really anticipate, but that's been awesome. Um, there are regular listeners from all around the world, and sometimes there's these big spikes every once in a while in China or in Central Africa. Um, I've also been thrilled to learn that about 35 to 40% of the listeners seem to be teachers who use it as an accessible way to connect with the research community, so that's great too. In terms of numbers, my original goal, I think, was to try to get up to like 100 downloads per episode. That seemed like it made it worthwhile, and it seemed like it would be pretty competitive with what maybe some journal articles get for downloads. Um, but the podcast is now up to more than 900 downloads per episode, and I'm hoping to keep heading upward towards 1,000. So thanks to all of you for listening and for spreading the word. Now looking back across the 100 episodes, although there have been some special episodes here and there, the main focus has been on those, you know, the main bread and butter of recent studies. But obviously there are also many amazing and important studies that came from before I started the podcast. So, so far I've kind of been ignoring those. So I wanted to use this 100th episode as an opportunity to showcase a variety of articles and books from math education in the past. I asked listeners to send in their thoughts about a past resource in math ed that has been especially meaningful to them. So what you'll hear next are contributions from seven people to whom I am very thankful for joining me in this 100th episode celebration. They will introduce themselves and then talk a bit about a resource that is important to them. I will put all of the references in the comments at mathedpodcast.com. Hello, my name is Joel Amidon, and I'm in the Department of Teacher Education at the University of Mississippi, where I serve as, a, as an associate professor. And I would love to join in the celebration of the 100th episode of the Math Education Podcast by sharing an inspiring piece of math education scholarship with you all. And that piece of scholarship would be Teaching and Learning Mathematics for Social Justice in an Urban Latino School by Eric Gutstein, also known as Rico. This article um, came at such a critical point in my uh, doctoral program. It actually came right at the beginning, uh, right in my first class. Uh, I was really struggling in my first class. There was lots of theoretical pieces we were just logging through and just remember a lot of late nights with articles on one side of the table, dictionary on the other side, just trying to make sense of what I was reading. And on top of that, I was also still teaching uh, high school mathematics, so I was doing it kind of part, doing my program part time while I was still teaching, and just not seeing a lot of connections between what I was reading and what I was doing in the classroom, which added to the struggle. That struggle ended when I read this article, reading um, Rico's work, uh, where he's trying to figure out what does this thing called teaching math for social justice look like uh, within a classroom with students, and really trying to take this theory and put it into action and basically sharing what happened and it was like wow this I mean this looks like what I kind of do in my classroom where I have theories about how to improve my practice and put them into play I mean not looking like teaching math for social justice but looking like how do I make my groups work better how do I assess better uh, how do I uh, get to this idea of what a linear pattern is better and you know those sorts of mini experiments that I had were kind of like blown up in this article where Rico was trying to think like what does it look like to take this idea of what teaching math can look like and and do a whole course with it and that was really exciting I mean one just seeing like there was some sort of parallel between what, what I did in my classroom what Rico did in his classroom but then that shove of like this is what math teaching could look like was really mind-blowing 
And so going forward that this is what I could do in my classroom or this is what I could do for my doctoral research is really have this theory about what math teaching could look like and like play it out in the classroom uh, was really exciting. And that's kind of what I did for my dissertation and thinking about teaching mathematics as agape or unconditional love. And so I was really excited. Uh, and this, it, I would not have continued my program if it was not for this article. So this is the article I'd like to share for this 100th episode of the Mathematics Education Podcast. Thanks, Sam, for all the work you do. My name is Lynette Guzman. I recently earned my PhD in mathematics education at Michigan State University, and I'm currently a visiting assistant professor at the University of Arizona. Uh, the title I'll be talking about is a book chapter from Culturally Responsive Mathematics Education. Um, it's by Julia Aguirre, and it's called Privileging Mathematics and Equity in Teacher Education, Framework, Counter-Resistance Strategies, and Reflections from a Latina Mathematics Educator. When I was five years old, I wanted to be a teacher. But over the years in school, I was constantly encouraged to pursue STEM-based careers instead because I was a brown girl who other people saw as good at math. I participated in many outreach programs designed for underrepresented minority students in STEM fields. No one encouraged me to go into education. They needed me in STEM. Many are included in this they for different reasons. Companies need us to portray images of progressiveness and fairness. People of color need us to have role model representation and to transform oppressive spaces. Outreach programs that receive grants need us to justify funding and salaries for their work. Researchers need us for similar reasons. Our parents need us to have better opportunities than they ever did. But what do we want and need? This problem of being continually underrepresented did not go away when I entered mathematics education spaces for graduate school. One difference was that I did not hear many people talking about it until I read this book chapter. Julia begins the piece stating, the low-level production of Latino mathematics educators with PhDs is sobering. According to the National Science Foundation, between 1994 and 2004, 39 out of 1,086, or 3.5%, mathematics education doctorates were awarded to Latinos. I am one of these 39. On average, over this decade, the number of Latino doctorates produced annually can be counted on one hand. The first time I read these words was during my second year doctoral pro-seminar course, which was an overview of mathematics education research. I will never forget that this chapter was the piece of scholarship that made me believe I could do work in mathematics education research. Not only was this a person who looked like me, but she was also unapologetically speaking truth to power. Unlike the previous mathematics education research work I had read through my doctoral courses, I felt a genuinely deep connection. As a K-12 student, I successfully navigated school mathematics without any genuine relationship to mathematics that allowed me to see it as beautiful, useful, or humanizing. I hold a bachelor's degree in mathematics, yet do not voluntarily identify as a math person. I've spent years trying to make sense of my complicated relationship with mathematics as a discipline. I ultimately view my experiences as navigating the borderlands of mathematics education. I reject the consuming power of a math label imposed onto my identity, but in doing so, I feel judged on my presence in mathematics education spaces. I am caught in the middle of wanting mathematics and mathematics education to love me, while I also learn to love myself as a holistic, complicated human who is shaped by other holistic, complicated human beings in the world. From reflections on these experiences, I've come to approach my scholarship with the following guiding question. How will I work to deconstruct and reconstruct mathematics education 
in ways that treat students, teachers, prospective teachers, and more with dignity and love. My name is Chris Austin, and I am currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Missouri. A book that has been influential to me is The Psychology of Learning Mathematics by Richard Skemp. A big part of the reason that this was influential is because of when I read it. This was the main textbook in the first mathematics education course that I had as an undergraduate. So because of that, this was a big part of my introduction to ideas like schema, conceptual understanding, and there were other specific topics in the book uh, that I found interesting at the time. Uh, Rules Without Reasons was a huge one in part because the first activity of that course was a worksheet where we had to compute products and quotients. And the problems were zero divided by three, zero times three, zero divided by zero, three divided by zero, zero times zero, uh, just different combinations of zeros and threes. And I think I got two problems right on that. So rules without reasons hit home pretty quick. More importantly, I think the broader message of the book is what made it very influential to me. The idea that you could think about what goes on in schools from the perspective of learning was a very new concept to me because prior to that course, it was just what do you tell students to do is how I saw that. And I think that that is something that a lot of students in those undergraduate courses could relate to. Uh, the other thing that made it influential for me is there was no mistaking that these are complex ideas. So the writing was a bit difficult to read at the time. And as I look back at it, I wonder, what is it that I learned from my reading at the time? But I think one of, one of the big things that I did learn was that this requires some thought. I'm not just going to pick up seven great tips in a course and all of a sudden be a great teacher. Uh, I think this book helped me to understand that there is a bigger picture and that it's going to take a lot of time and effort to really maximize my potential as a teacher. Message podcast 100개를 진심으로 축하합니다. Congratulations for the 100th episode of Message Podcast. Hello, I'm Seungyeon Young, a second-year doctor student from University of Missouri. First of all, I really appreciate listening to this podcast. I'm able to follow specific researchers' work from dissertation to current project with each episode. This summer, Dr. Artun recommended to read one interesting book. Uh, the name was Mind in Society uh, by Vygotsky. This book contains a collection of his writings and is a good starting point to learn more about social cultural learning. Shifting away from methodology itself, the book's second half focuses on the implications of Vygotsky's methodology for education, particularly emphasized is the GPD, Journal of Proximal Development, 
uh, defined as uh, the distance between the actual development level as determined by independent problem solving and the level of potential development as determined through problem solving in collaboration with other peers. Consistent with his notion of development as a didactical process, Vygotsky sees a child learning indicated not purely by individual capacities but by the child's emerging abilities as revealed in collaboration and interaction with others. Then, what is the meaning of the title Mind in Society? In my opinion, like a mass-ed podcast, uh, people could learn and develop themselves uh, together with interpersonal adaptation like this. Thank you. This is Jeremy Strayer. I'm an associate professor of mathematics education at Middle Tennessee State University. A book that had a great impact on me is a small book by James Hebert and colleagues called Making Sense. I grew up learning in schools heavily influenced by the Back to Basics era, so I learned mathematics quite procedurally. When I started my graduate studies, it was difficult for me to imagine what standards-based or reform-oriented instruction could actually look like. Making Sense provided me with a scholarly yet practical description of what classrooms that help students learn mathematics with deep understanding can look like. It considers dimensions of the mathematics classroom like the nature of tasks, the roles of the teacher, classroom culture, tools that are used for learning, and equity, and describes in a really accessible way the features of each of these dimensions that help students learn deeply. The nice balance between granular specificity on the one hand and a broad focus on helping students learn mathematics with understanding on the other really sparked my imagination, and there was no turning back. Thanks for doing this podcast, Sam, and congratulations on your 100th episode. My name is David Coffey. I'm a professor of mathematics with an emphasis in education. Uh, I teach at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. The resource that was most meaningful for me over my career is a reading from Alan Schoenfeld, uh, a chapter from Cognitive Science and Mathematics Education. Uh, the title of the chapter is What's All the Fuss About Metacognition? Uh, I first read this chapter when I was working on my PhD. I was interested in uh, mathematical beliefs and part of what the article talks about is the development of beliefs in students, unproductive beliefs, um, for instance, that all problems ought to be solved uh, in 10 minutes and that you need to be a genius to be able to solve uh, mathematics problems. A lot of what was also associated with this was this idea of problem solving and, and not necessarily how we can teach problem solving but how we can support uh, metacognitive practices while students do problem solving on non-routine problems. A lot of this entailed modeling and it wasn't until I started watching uh, in-service elementary teachers do think-alouds in reading and in writing 
that um, I was reminded of this article and came back to it, reread it, and started thinking about what might that look like. Uh, Schoenfeld talks about problem resolving instead of problem solving, actually working through an, uh, a problem in front of students the exact way a mathematician might solve the problem the first time. And so I started thinking about what might that look like in mathematics. And so um, I still share this article with with students and with teachers, um, especially as we're trying to still address some of those uh, unproductive beliefs and um, support metacognitive behaviors in mathematics. Hey, hey, Dan Meyer here, lifelong math enthusiast, one-time math educator, and one-time grad student. I am calling out a paper here that checked a bunch of the boxes that I think great papers should check. It gives names and connection and structure to ideas that up to that point were just kind of like scattered around in my brain which is awesome. It presents a theory and illustrates it vividly using anecdotes from the classroom. And personally, it gave a shot in the arm to my research agenda, which culminated in my dissertation academically, but which I continue to develop in my work as head of teaching at Desmos. That paper is Intellectual Need and Problem-Free Activity by Evan Fuller, Jeffrey Rabin, and Gershon Harrell. Problem-free here refers to the quality of certain math tasks to meander, to ask questions about a context, mathematical or pure, simply because they can, not because they must, not because there's any urgency to answering them. Once you have that label in your head, problem-free, it's really hard not to notice it in the curriculum you review or classes you observe. It's like, oh, students don't understand the point of this. They're completing small component tasks of some whole they don't get. This is difficult and feels pointless. Intellectual need was the more revelatory aspect for me. It draws heavily on the Piagetian concept of disequilibrium. How I explain it in my work with teachers is that we didn't invent new mathematical concepts and skills to torment students. We invented them to resolve a need we were experiencing. We as in humanity, and not a need in the world necessarily, a need generated by the limits of old concepts and skills. And it's useful for students to live in that moment of need before we help them learn that new knowledge. If math is aspirin, I ask myself, then what is the headache and how do I create it? Harrell identifies two other kinds of need, social, like you should learn this so you get to graduate, and economic, like you should learn this so you can get a job someday. And those were helpful categories because I realized how much they motivated me as a kid and how little they motivated students I taught for whom jobs and even graduation were kind of abstract concepts. So use intellectual need instead. And Harrell does us all a huge favor by, again, dividing intellectual need into five different parts, the need for communication and computation and certainty, for instance. And different kinds of math are generated from different needs, and each need offers different techniques for the teacher and the curriculum designer, which I am today. So all of which I employ, I, I use all this, this, these ideas in my work every day with my team at Desmos. My team called each other out for a really long time, like for being problem-free. This kind of meanders, we'd say. What are we doing here? We're asking this question and that question because they exist, not because we we must. What is the need here? We've been doing that as a team for a couple of years now, creating activities that are used in thousands of classes every week, which I think is not a bad result for one person from reading one paper. So thanks again for all those thoughtful contributions. And as for me, I think I'll just briefly mention something that I really enjoyed reading as an undergrad at Grand Valley State. It's uh, The Teaching Gap by the Jameses, James Stigler and James Hebert. 
The Teaching Gap is a book that came out of the Third International Mathematics and Science Study, or TIMS, and the book focused on the video data that was collected from middle school classrooms in the United States, Germany, and Japan. I think the book stood out to me because I easily recognized the U.S. math classroom, even though it was from an entirely different part of the country than where I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, it still looked very much like what my math experience was like. And then even more important was that the book and the accompanying videos, they also showed me different possibilities for what math classrooms could look like. I was able to see rich problems and students discussing mathematical ideas facilitated by the teachers, where the teacher wasn't just telling everyone what to do. And for me, reading and discussing The Teaching Gap as an undergrad was an important time for me to be introduced to that book, because that was also when I was moving into more advanced mathematical classes beyond calculus, where instead of being so procedural and focused, I was starting to engage in reasoning and representing mathematical ideas with classmates and instructors. So just as I was starting to enjoy this richer type of mathematical activity, I was introduced to the idea that it's possible to do that in schools. So this broadening of possibilities that the teaching gap offered me has colored my thinking about math instruction ever since. And it's been influential not only in my teaching, but also in my research, where I try to look for and support the mathematical practices actually happening in secondary classrooms in the United States. I also appreciate that the teaching gap doesn't oversimplify the situation. It deals with teaching as a cultural practice that is influenced in many ways, and it's part of a much bigger system that goes beyond just the individual teacher and his or her students. So those aspects of the book also help me to start to wrap my head around this whole endeavor, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it even to this day. So that's an influential book in my math ed history. Now to wrap up this special episode, I just want to make a few remarks about the future of the podcast. Going forward, I'd like to recruit a new team of podcast contributors. These would be people who, as much as they're able to, I'd like to have them help me in two main ways. First of all, this team could guest host episodes for me, where they recruit and record an interview with a scholar. It could be a friend of theirs, a colleague, or just someone who you want an excuse to talk to about their work. With the help of guest hosts, I could increase the output of episodes beyond what I'm able to do with my own time commitments. The guest hosts would help me with the interview side of things, but I would still be willing to do the editing and producing. So if you're thinking about this, it would basically be about two or three hours of work um, and do it as often as is comfortable. Read the article, sit down, do the interview, send it over to me. The other thing that I want to try out if I can get a team of contributors together is to start doing some digest episodes. I already have one person who's willing to help out on this, and that's Chuck Munter here at Mizzou. And what he and I have thought about is doing these digest episodes where we have a few people all read a recent study in math ed, and then those people would summarize the study and reflect on it and record that in a duration of about four to five minutes. The contributors would not typically be summarizing their own studies. It could be anyone's study on just something that's important in some way and it's worth sharing with others. Um, because there's basically just too many journals and too many articles uh, coming out all the time. We can't keep up with all of them. So the idea would be to have digest episodes where listeners can check out the episode and in less than half an hour they can hear summaries of maybe five studies. Um, so these digest episodes would come out periodically at whatever pace the contributor team is able to handle. We don't want to overwork anyone here. Um, but anyway, if you could see yourself contributing in either of these ways, as a guest host for interviews or as a summarizer for the digest episodes, 
then please email me and we can have a conversation to see if it might work out. I can be reached at ottensa at missouri.edu. I hope it does work out and it will make the next 100 episodes even better than the first 100. And even if you don't want to be a podcast contributor, there are other ways you can help. Please just spread the word. If you know that there are others who might like to hear what we're doing on the podcast, just tell them about it. Send them the URL. And if you're willing to give financially to the podcast, I will gladly accept donations through the PayPal button at mathedpodcast.com. Any donations will go straight toward the domain hosting and the podcast server fees that I currently pay out of pocket. Um, Those costs have recently gone up a bit because of the large back catalog of episodes that I'm trying to maintain. So in order to have enough storage space, I had to increase a little bit. But I am committed to maintaining free access to all of the past episodes. So they're always going to be there. um, And with some contributions from you, like even like $5, that will just help keep everything up and running. So thank you so much for listening, and I really appreciate that the MathEd community has been so welcoming of this effort. Thank you especially to everyone who has contributed to this retrospective episode. Thanks to all the guests who have been on the past 99 episodes. And now to play us out is my colleague Corey Webel. This performance is from PMENA in Indianapolis just a couple weeks ago. I'm on the piano, and Corey is on guitar and lead vocals. And Corey rewrote the lyrics to a song that I think you'll recognize, and I hope that you'll enjoy this math ed version. Every now and then I share a lattice multiplication on an airplane. Every now and then I post a video of my kid equipped partitioning. Every now and then I think they'd never say that if we were talking about reading. Every now and then I say it's not a curriculum, it's just a set of learning goals. I'm sorry about that math teacher you had. Hold on one second. Alright, so let's do the, uh, yeah, okay, turn around math guy. Yeah, the math guy thing is like, you know, people are like, hey, you're a math guy. Like, then they ask me some computation. I'm just gonna pull out my phone like everybody else. I'm sorry about that math teacher you had. Algebra's not meant to be that bad And I need a break tonight I really need one more than ever Unlike the digits of pi I can't go on forever If I don't get that computation right I'll be hearing about it forever Tomorrow I'll be at it again A lawyer representative of Seeing the academics are soft You're mistaken if you think I get the summers off <laughs> And in case you can tell I know a lot of educational jargon I know a lot of education words Once upon a time there was just PCK Now we've got this crazy egg <laughs> Nothing you can say is the math educator Data gets 
I haven't touched it, I don't know where to start. <laughs> if that sounds about right, that's the method to create Don't like graphing blame decor. 